Hey everyone, and welcome to this special Soapbox edition of the Risky Business Podcast. My name's Patrick Gray. As most of you know, these Soapbox podcasts are wholly sponsored, and that means everyone you hear in one of these editions of the show paid to be here. This Soapbox edition is sponsored by Proofpoint, one of the largest cybersecurity companies on the planet. Uh, They offer email security and DLP products and services, and they're probably best known for being, as far as I know at least, uh, the biggest email security company on the planet. And that means they process a lot of emails. That means headers, attachments, and written content uh, in the hopes of cutting back the amount of malicious emails that organizations have to deal with, whether that's malware, phishing, or BEC. So with that in mind, what role could large language models play in email security? Now that the initial ChatGPT hype has died off a little, we spoke with Proofpoint's VP of Cybersecurity Strategy, Ryan Calumba, about large language models and how they're going to help defenders and attackers alike. Here he is now explaining his broad take on what LLMs are good for. Enjoy. It's great for a limited set of things, many of which were already being done with predecessors that we called stuff like machine learning. Yeah. But ultimately... It's not going to be a panacea. It doesn't fix everybody's problems magically in a way that I think was briefly at least marketed, if not ever backed up by anything substantive. I mean, it almost feels like one of those mass delusions where some village in Peru, like they'd all see the Virgin Mary or something. You know, it it sort of felt a little bit like that for a while, didn't it? Well, uh, speaking as someone who lives in Palo Alto, California, uh, I can say I was right in the middle of that particular delusion <laughs> and uh, not sure if it, it was anything atmospheric or in the water supply. But yes, it absolutely felt like that for a while. And in cybersecurity, too, it was fascinating to see everybody start talking about the same thing at the same time, mm. which is reasonably rare given how broad and, and diverse the subject matter generally is. Mm. So what what are the use cases though that we're seeing flush out, right? Because there is the, you know, there is the now with added AI sticker being slapped on an awful lot of boxes. I mean, exactly. I can think of one, you know, sensible use case, which came from uh, one of our sponsors, Corelight, where they just added a, uh, you know, a little button you could click that would throw a prompt at ChatGPT, which would cause it to explain an alert, right? Which, you know, just in terms of like generating some useful content for people who are sitting in front of their product, it seemed like a pretty good idea. Um, yeah. But, you know, what, what are some other use cases that you can think of where this thing is already showing some promise? I mean, there are some straightforward ones that actually have a lot in common with that Corelight use case. If you're actually interacting with a human in a way that can be reliably actually passed off as a, an authentic interaction by a chatbot, then it's a great way to actually collate a lot of information and get it in the same place. And in some cases, it's actually a pretty good explainer. If you need to take something that would make sense to a cybersecurity professional and explain it to somebody as if they're in elementary school, it's not actually very bad at doing that. It's you just good described my job ways. when I used to write for newspapers, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, you don't have that job anymore, so you're not <laughs> yeah. under threat from the AI uh, job replacement revolution. If, but, any, uh, if anyone's but, wondering why I started Risky Business, that is why. But there yes, you go. <laughs> so yes, content aggregation, all that aside, w- one of the things that becomes really interesting is that end-user-facing applications are, are the ones that have shown some real promise, like the, the co-pilots that are out there, what CrowdStrike's doing with Charlotte. If it's just a matter of taking information that is available in a relatively straightforward form somewhere else and putting it in front of somebody, probably can't use a model that was trained on the internet a few years ago to do that, but you can absolutely have it pull some things together that then ultimately make sense in a human context when a human is the recipient of that information. 
Yeah, so instead of just seeing like an error code, right? Like I, I feel like ChatGPT will, will and, and similar technologies are going to end the era of just having, you know, really weird numerical Windows errors. Oh, totally. And <laughs> yeah. it, it might also end the era of some things that we do right now, right? So if you want to, uh, you can place a warning banner on email messages that says, this is a brand new domain. Please be extra careful with this message. Does that mean much to a cybersecurity professional? Well, yes, we know that we shouldn't trust brand new domains most of the time. Uh, does that mean much to an average user? I think it's debatable, right? Those are the mm. sorts of things where we could be explaining it in very different ways rather than relying on a rules-based system that, frankly, has a technical explanation behind it, like like all those error codes. Yeah, this website has only existed since last Tuesday, and usually that's a sign that, you know, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, exactly. Sort of and and yeah. if you're interfacing with a human, uh, like we have a fairly large security awareness business, you know, I think generative AI is actually going to help us make things a lot more tailored, a lot more relevant, uh, particularly because we already have a really good understanding of which people are getting attacked, how they're getting attacked, what we could be delivering if we were not in the way, what threats they would in theory be receiving in their inbox, the types of social engineering that would cause those threats to be effective as well as their own habits in terms of data handling and a whole sort, a whole mess of other things that could help us build up models of behavior that ultimately become really interesting ways to make things less generic, make it much more specific to a particular individual as opposed to, hey, everybody gets the same training, you know, every however many months. Yeah. Yeah, everyone has that. Everyone gets forced to watch the video every six months or whatever. Yeah, right? exactly. That's and click through all the quizzes yeah. and you maybe get the hard one because you did well last year, but that's not really tailoring in the same sense. You yeah. Know, there's, a, there's a lot of debates, I think very reasonable ones around simulated attacks, especially simulated phishing attacks and whether those are worth it, whether those have uh, a basis in reality and prediction. Uh, but I will tell you one thing, they're a whole lot more effective when they derive from real attacks rather than fake ones. Mm. Uh, and so th those are the sorts of things that, you know, these models make more efficient than if you were doing these types of things manually. So look, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about this is that Proofpoint is by revenue, the third largest security company on the planet, right? Like it is, it is a very, very big company. It also falls into this category. Uh, I mean, you're the opposite to most of our sponsors, right? Who most of them are startups doing, you know, really cool, interesting niche stuff. Proofpoint's kind of what I describe as an infosec utility, right? Like, uh, you know, you, you pay, pay a utility to keep the lights on and the water flowing. And, you know, you pay Proofpoint to keep your email flowing in a state that's reasonable, right? Which is um, yeah. even getting that into a reasonable state is a heavy lift. Obviously, I would not recommend you abandon all of your other controls <laughs> and yes. rely exclusively on an email security provider to stop all bad stuff getting through. But, you know, the point is that Proofpoint is a utility uh, uh, that... Um, uh, that that certainly makes it possible uh, to to operate uh, email services and not immediately uh, be destroyed. So, you know, the number of inboxes and addresses that you are protecting is just absolutely astronomical. The breadth of in terms of the types of businesses that you're protecting also absolutely astronomical. So, if there's one, and and also the amount of text that you're processing is absolutely astronomical, right? So. There are a number of reasons why I think that, you know, if there is one company out there that, that should be investigating uh, this stuff, it is you. So, what, you know, where are you looking? Uh, you know, where are you looking to sort of integrate this stuff into what you do? I'd imagine there would be, 
uh, these models could be useful when scanning mail, for example. I'd imagine these models can be useful in, you know, like we were talking about, explaining stuff to users, trying to upskill them, make them smarter. You know, there's, there's just so many ways that you, could, that you could use it. So where are you looking? Like, how do you even start to prioritize your efforts here? Yeah, I think your da- our data science team would agree with you that we're an interesting place to start working on some of these problems because yeah. we have human communications and we have billions of messages a day in order to train these models. And for a very long time, we've worked on getting very large, well-labeled data sets that we can use for those purposes. It is interesting to pick and choose between problems that you would solve with an approach like this versus problems you would continue to solve with other things. And there are a few that are maybe worth starting with that actually AI has not been particularly useful for. I mean, it's it's still a control we use for, say, malware detection. But if you train an AI model on a bunch of malware you have seen in email, it's not particularly good. And it's certainly not better than the static analysis or sandboxing at catching the next one, uh, which is not actually in a, a use case that, that, that works out well. I think um, yeah, in the, the early days, obviously, you know, Silence and, and others pioneered AI-driven malware detection. There was some really strong uh, initial promise there. I don't know that anybody's throwing out their EDRs for an AI solution that, that would solely do prevention at this point in time. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd imagine a lot of the sort of machine learning-based stuff that you would do would be more around doing things like stripping domains out of out of messages and yeah. doing some domain analytics and, you know, scoring them and all of that sort of stuff. Just the old boring stuff is going to be, you know, ChatGPT is not going to help you there. Oh, oh, totally, totally. And actually, one of the things that is most interesting for us to use AI to do is to figure out whether there's a good chance that a URL is ever going to be clicked on or not, right? Because we process about 49 billion URLs a day. We can't run them all through all of the detection engines. It would be prohibitively expensive to do so. And actually the cost part of AI is actually an interesting part of this equation too. But when we look at likelihood of being clicked and likelihood of being malicious, if that's a OneDrive link or something, we're going to scan it 100% of the time because we actually probably didn't need the fancy AI model to tell us that, but it's just much more likely to be malicious than uh, a whole set of other things. Uh, and yes, the domain analysis becomes a useful part of that model. And ultimately, when we look at resource allocation between AI use cases, even with the data set that we have available to us, there are a few things that it actually lends itself to really well. Uh, social engineering, and manipulation of identity is is actually a good problem to point AI at. If I can say in somebody's conversations, well, you've maybe contacted this person before, they've contacted you before, there's a graph of communications between the two of you, but no one's ever mentioned a payment. No one's ever mentioned a you know change of bank account details. Those are the sorts of things that are very, very identifiable if you have sort of semantic understanding of the message text. Now, that's interesting. That's interesting. So, you know, to look at stuff like, for example, business email compromise, right? Yes. When you can detect like a shift in tone that, or, or a shift in intent that might not be obvious to a human being, but would stand out if being analyzed by one of these tools. Yeah, exactly. And uh, that, that we, we call that behavioral AI. I don't know if there's a better term for it, but that's certainly what we've used. Uh, we've had that in production for a couple of years now, and it's been really good at a lot of the BEC use cases that don't necessarily rely on third-party compromised accounts, but rely on impersonation. Uh, compromised accounts, you have to catch in other ways, and the tone shifts become more interesting. You but I mean, you're not using a large language model to do that, are you? I mean, I'd imagine you're just scoring it with things like keywords and whatever. 
Uh, I mean, you you can certainly start there. The keywords are helpful because they're cheap too. A rules-based engine yeah. will always execute faster and we want to do the expensive detections last and the cheap detections first uh, just because it's, it's much more efficient that way. But we are actually now using semantic understanding. Uh, we're using a, a bird model actually, which is uh, what Google developed before Bard. Uh, it's not trained on quite as many parameters as, as ChatGPT, but it does the job in terms of tell me the yeah. intent behind this email. Uh, and uh, and we're getting it down to you know a tenth of a second in terms of how fast it can run uh, across a message. And there are also useful signals that we can incorporate in terms of when to use it. So when it comes from a known supplier, do that 100% of the time. When it's a message that has been reported by an end user as suspicious, feed it through the LLM. Like those are those are great times to do that. Especially when, again, you're not looking for malware, you're not looking for credential fish in the traditional sense, you're just looking for social engineering. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I mean, let's talk about the resource thing, though, right? Because that's a really interesting part of this whole conversation. I think, you know, there's, there, there would be an even split, I'd imagine, among the people listening to this between the people who understand how computationally intensive this stuff is and the people who have just didn't think of it, right? And it is monstrously computationally intensive to do this stuff to the point that nvidia's share price has gone loopy right it's gone to the moon because for them to justify their current share price i think like their their manufacturing capacity would just have to boom in all sorts of unrealistic ways like we're at the point where we're going to hit capacity constraints on compute if this stuff gets as widely adopted as the the hype train uh sort of thinks it will right so this stuff is going to get increasingly expensive and it's going to get rationed. This idea that you can just LLM all the things is no, it's not going to happen. It's going to get expensive, more expensive than it is now as people find more and more productive use cases for it. So, you know, I mean, you've already talked a bit about how you have to ration this capability, but do you anticipate that you're going to have to ration it even more? I guess is the question. That's a good question. What we're trying to do is actually figure out how to use it in more places, but not break the cost curve. Uh, to, and your your description is absolutely spot on. That's the main reason that we haven't actually put it at the beginning of the detection stack. Because it actually well, really- forget just, it. I mean, just forget <laughs> it. Like at your scale, forget it. Yeah. No, it's, 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 it's impossible. Because even if you get it down to you know a tenth of a cent to analyze a message, if you multiply that by billions, no one's going to pay for that, right? So it's uh, if NVIDIA can even make the chips. Uh, and so, yeah, we are we're looking for basically cheap ways to knock down the things that we don't have to analyze further. So some simple things like IP reputation, static analysis, rules-based things that knock that that piece down. And then when you get to the interesting parts that you've identified in other ways, then you can do the expensive stuff. And this is actually something we have some experience with because this was true for sandboxing too, right? Mm. (laughs) Sandboxing an attachment is actually more expensive than the current LLM-based analysis that we do. That's the most expensive thing we can do. And we figured out how to do that, obviously, hundreds of millions of times a day uh, in in varying ways, Uh, but... It is a very, very complicated engineering exercise to just sort of build the harness that can can do all of that at scale. And so, yeah, I mean, it's 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 interesting though when you start really drilling into this as a topic, right? Whether it's sandboxing or whether it's LLMs, you know, the the 
making the decision about where to apply them becomes the critical thing, right? Yes. Because you don't want to not apply it to the thing that's going to get one of your customers owned. Well, exactly, exactly. And it's one of the things where we're a little bit in a privileged position because we don't have to operate at wire speed for this type of detection. And we're not chewing up endpoint resources that I, I can't imagine how you would possibly do that, actually. Uh, you'd have to do it somewhere in the cloud uh, in order to make any of this work efficiently. So because email's asynchronous by definition, we have at least the luxury of doing more things. Uh, and and we'll, we'll keep doing the, the stuff that has, has worked historically. But even when it comes to what you're trying to solve for, gratuitous use of LLMs is definitely off the table. Because to your point, yeah. you can't do that at scale and have any kind of a reasonable cost model. So we have to try and use those other signals to say, you know, are we solving the social engineering problem here? Is this a BEC thing rather than, you know, a big old QBot campaign? Uh, because detection engineering is still undefeated when it comes to that stuff. And so what, one of the things that becomes interesting is we also have to figure out on our side, okay, we've got 5,000 people, about 1,400 across detection engineering, threat research, and data science. How do you allocate those things? <laughs> those people don't all cost the same also, and uh, their efforts don't scale the same ways. Uh, and so even though actually the data science work does scale pretty well, um, the ongoing cost of running that is an order of magnitude more than the detection engineering. So it becomes yeah. a really complicated thing for us to make sense of. And for those who are evaluating our tech versus what others have out there, you know, it's, it's, we're past the point at which you can do AI hand-wavy stuff. But if you are using an LLM to do something, it should be able to generate something that you can actually see. And so if, you, if you're if you going to, just using that previous example, if you're going to condemn an email message as BEC, it better say supplier impersonation, change in tone, uh, add all of the other things that the LLM actually demonstrated because it cannot be a black box. It's just simply too expensive to uh, to do so. Yeah, I mean, I wonder too what sort of uses you could have for an LLM in terms of actually using it in a combined approach with detection engineering. And from that, I don't mean prioritizing. What I mean is like using it as a tool to analyze a lot of BEC emails and try to spit out more generic and cheaper detections. Like is there, or, you know, I mean, I obviously don't understand this technology super well. <laughs> you know, am I just talking nonsense there or no, is that something no, that, it, that works? You're actually not wrong. So there's a couple things that we did that are, I mean, LLM-ish in that in that category. So we did train an LLM type model on macros, right? Like malicious macros all kind of fit into similar patterns. So it was actually a pretty good thing if you could parse it out of the document to Yeah, so do actually that, right? Vitero, Vitero, who do their content disarm and reconstruction, yeah. um, they did something similar and they said exactly the same thing, which is once you can actually view a macro in isolation of the document, just yeah. pull it out and you know train up a model um it's it's actually extremely reliable yeah absolutely and we've done the same thing for uh, a lot of credential phishing urls uh cr the credfish that we work on mostly now is the mfa capable stuff like evil proxy uh, evil nginx uh, 2 and all of those adversary in the middle direct proxy ones and adversary in the middle indirect proxy ones that actually is pretty good if you're, you're using an LM, LLM for it. And we're actually now at the point where the models um, that we push into production, now obviously they have to exceed their predecessor in effectiveness. But if if you do it right, you can push a new one every week. Uh, and uh, 
And the, the models do actually get better and better and better when focused on problems like that. The the last one that I'd throw into the mix there that is, again, it feels relatively straightforward, but it's still ultimately a pretty good application of this is if you have basically semantic understanding of the message content and you have stuff from suppliers, like that's a tricky problem to solve. We always sort of toss our hands up and say, okay, that, that third party got owned. <laughs> they can't really do anything about that. It's coming from exactly uh, where it's supposed to be coming from. It's a reply to a legitimate thread, all those sorts of things. As it happens, uh, even when you look at kind of the cloud logons and then the after effects that show up in places like email headers, you can actually build some models on that. And that's where you get into the message bodies also in terms of the shift in tone, well, shift in that. Yeah, and that, yeah, that part yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. It's, you have to use more ingredients. It's not no, a no, single dimension. No, no, I get it, I get but... it, I get it. It's when you combine an LLM with the other ML-based stuff, exactly. right? And exactly. you ask it, you know, you, you pull together all of the information that you would stick in front of a human anal analyst. So I'm, I'm getting this, right? So you would pull all, all together all of the stuff that you would put in front of a human analyst that would allow them to make that call. Exactly. And you should be able to train an LLM that has access to headers and time of day information and uh, archive of previous communications yeah. between those people. You should be able to ask an LLM, is this a BAC email? And it, with the correct prompt, and it should be able to tell you. It will tell you within a reasonable degree of certainty. And even if it can't tell you 100%, you should be able to then use that to warn the user. Well, because... it could tell you if, you if they need to pick up the phone. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely right. And I think that that that's exactly the approach that has mattered here. Just I mean, you can't say you can't, it, it won't be able to say if something is BEC, but it will be able to tell you right. if something is indistinguishable from BEC. That's correct. That's exactly yeah. the right way to put it. Yeah, uh, and that even and this is where I'm going to depress everybody. Uh, so uh, if you look at a brand new Microsoft 365 tenant that we have never seen before, um, the odds that we find a compromised account in the first week are about 50-50 for our enterprise customer base, which, again, it's it might be happening more frequently than that, but that's depressing, particularly because yeah. it, it, and this is FIDO2 and, and password lists and, and lots of things should solve no, this. But no, no, man. Like even, even something like three or four years ago, I think the stats for Microsoft MFA... Like across O three six five, it was like two percent or yeah. something like that. It and was now just it's like, like really with, like just what? And Jen Easterly's been been on this as well because it's not much improved from from back then. And if we look at actually a lot of those compromises, they're from accounts that just don't have MFA on them, and they've been mm. brute forced. Still in twenty twenty three, we are still talking. Well, I about think it that. was I think it was only a couple of years ago that uh, Microsoft turned off legacy protocols that didn't support MFA. Yes, for people who signed up before twenty seventeen. Right, because if you signed up before twenty seventeen, you got these. You know, and my dates could be wrong, but I think that's right. No, um, you had it. Yeah, I'm out. Pop yeah. three, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah exactly. So yeah. if you signed up before twenty uh, twenty seventeen. All of that stuff would be open and, you know, unless you disabled it, it would be there even if you never used it. Yeah. So initially what they did is in 2017, new tenants wouldn't have that stuff and you'd have to turn it on, but they left all that stuff open. It's all, you know, yeah, when exactly. They, they eventually turned it off like, what, a year or two ago and that was that made a big difference. But it, God, it did, why it did, did they take we so still, long? But you can still have an account that doesn't have MFA on it. It's possible yes, exactly, to do. Exactly. And so what yeah. we end up seeing, and this is, again, pretty depressing, is that a 50% rate of account compromise somewhere, and most of that is still brute forcers, which mm. is shocking, right? Like conditional access, all this stuff should work. It, then there's reality, right? Yeah. And so one, one of the things that's actually been a useful 
it's not generative AI, but it's definitely what I would call ML, is basically using the data from the brute forcers to identify, to fingerprint them and identify that type of activity. And you can get to the point now where it's a bit, it's almost recursive, right? You can have the old models make new models that are more effective than themselves when it comes to something like brute forcers, which are the same data repeated over and over and over again in very, very slightly uh, differing parameters. So hang on, you're fingerprinting the brute forces? I mean, you, yeah. do you see those logins? Well, you have from Graph API, right? <laughs> that's yeah, okay. A, okay, a lot okay. you get from Graph API. Mm. And, uh, and that's, uh, that's sort of how we try to connect. So hang on, hang on. If you can detect brute forcing through the Graph API, yeah. right? What's my question? Like, I'm sure you can predict my question. If you can see that, Ryan, yes. why is Microsoft not stopping it? It's the same reason they're not <laughs> stopping malicious messages in email inboxes which are or slightly noisier failures, right? It's very, very hard to do this stuff at scale. It's very expensive to do this stuff at scale. And I don't know uh, why their extremely well-regarded threat detection team and the intel they have, like, it just plays out differently in real life. But and surely, surely you could make a couple of little engineering changes, right? If you are operating that core service, you could make some engineering changes that would make detecting brute forcing quite easy. I would hope so. I think they've they've done much better on certain things like how conditional access policies work, but it's still fifty percent. Man, and that's ah, Microsoft. <laughs> <laughs> I'm shaking my fist for the yes. people uh, who can't see it. But look again, you know this this brings us back to something that's been near and dear to my heart for a long time. Is you know anyone listening to this? The probably the best thing you can do. The most bang for buck that you can get for your enterprise right now in terms of improving its security is to go out and get FIDO2 keys for your employees. Especially yeah. if you're using something like 0365, Google Workspace, go get FIDO2 or at the very least, you know, maybe turn on pass keys or something like that, right? Because, yeah, we're, it's, just, it's just nuts. Well, we're at the point where in most of our enterprise customers, the number one attack technique they will see is evil proxy just yeah. by volume. Right, because yeah. it's now available. And that's, of course, for those who are not OFA, these are these yeah. um, these uh, fish kits that will bypass stuff like uh, yeah. you know, code-based MFA. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a reverse proxy, basically. So it's loading yeah. the real login page. It's proxying your input back to the real login page. So to your point, auth codes, even with number matching, push notifications, they're, they're, they're somewhat pointless against that. And that's uh, that's where you know authentication cookies get stolen. But really, you know, again, we're a little far afield from the AI topic. But again, yeah. like things that that actually do resemble human human communications or that fit into a really, really well. Simple hang on, set hang on. The reason the reason that I took us down that path, right, is to mention something that you alluded to earlier, right, which is that even if you roll out FIDO two and all of your inboxes are locked down and it's all wonderful. That doesn't protect you against one of your partners not doing that. Right? Exactly. Exactly. And that's how BEC, that's how the BEC babby is made. Yeah, that's and that's spot on. Uh, so we've we've actually tried to put together a couple of interesting things on that front because this is actually a pretty good use of it's not really generative AI, but it's good ML. Uh, because figuring out which domains you communicate with regularly, those are probably your suppliers and the third parties you depend on to some extent, right? Email communications are a good proxy for business relationships, uh, no pun intended. Uh, and that ultimately becomes actually a way for us to try and figure out when we talk to this massive enterprise when, and you ask them how many suppliers they have and they have no idea. It's some number in, in the single digit thousands sometimes. I talked to a, a pharma the other day where the number is actually 10,000. 
suppliers that they have, <laughs> you know, the database and procurement system. And we try and figure out, all right, well, maybe you have a, a likely compromised account from that third-party supplier communicating with one of your users. Can I identify that anywhere else, not just at your organization? Because they're usually going to pop that third party and go after more than one target. That's one of the few things that actually becomes a useful way to, again, feed these models. But you can use the model to figure out who the supplier is, and you can use the semantic understanding to actually understand whether the message fits into pre-existing communication patterns. And this actually starts to feel like a useful thing that you could do with generative AI that you couldn't do before. And so yeah. that's kind of the light at the end of the tunnel for this stuff, but it still remains really poorly suited for, frankly, most problems. Yeah, yeah, no, agreed. Uh, I think it's also quite useful for people on the attacking side as well. I think a lot of these BEC emails are going to be generated by LLMs, right? So especially the ones in uh, languages that are not widely spoken uh, outside their own countries. Yeah, you mentioned you mentioned yeah. this before we started getting rec- got before we started uh, recording, and and you've seen this massive uptick in. Uh, BEC targeting Japanese organizations in Japanese. Yes. So BEC was, is always a contentious topic in Japan. If you talk to a lot of Japanese security leaders, uh, they don't, uh, Japanese organizations all don't have CISOs at this point uh, for a variety of reasons. Some of them were very dismissive for a long time of the BEC problem because the attacker was not Japanese. They didn't speak Japanese. They didn't understand business customs and how these sorts of things were communicated. If you talk to a Japanese multinational who was working all over the world, they very much understood BEC. <laughs> they were very much a, a target of it and had been for a really long time. But now we're seeing that that language and perhaps cultural understanding barrier is pretty much removed. That's gone now. So that, the moat's yeah. gone. And uh, the messages are definitely increasing in volume. The schemes are not fundamentally different. But if you can write a convincing message in, in Japanese, I mean, that, that's an easy thing for any kind of LLM to do. And that's the other thing that can scale in interesting ways. What I think we could see but have not seen is, um, you might have seen we published some research on uh, Charming Kitten, or as we track them, TA-453, where they do what we call multi-persona phishing, uh, where they're setting up multiple different (laughs) fake identities, and they're having a conversation with the real target sort of on copy. Uh, And so you see this whole message thread with multiple personas involved. And it feels like a, a real thing where people are talking and you just happen to be one of the people on the thread. You happen to be the target, of course. That's mm. the sort of thing that you know, chatbot type functionality could really automate quite well. Uh, and but I, I just, on this Japan thing, I just think it's actually really clever for, you know, one of these crews, you know, say one of them based in Nigeria yeah. to be like, hey, let's go hit Japan because thanks to this tool, we can speak Japanese in a way that passes you know, muster oh, exactly. in these emails. You know, that's amazing. It, it is. And also those are not user populations that understand BEC. They don't understand what they're yeah. looking for. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're, not start, they're starting for zero. This is like, like this is unplanted. Virgin fields, territory. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Virgin territory. Yeah. 100%. You know, you know, though, I will just say one thing, like uh, over the last uh, couple of weeks. So as much as we talk about, uh, or, you know, BEC issues and, you know, technological solutions to it and whatever, I don't know if you saw this, but there's a new regulation in the United Kingdom where the banks are going to have to uh, actually cover scam losses. Yes. For their customers, see that. right? That is and it's real funny. Like we're sitting here talking about large language models. Let's see what BEC looks like in England in six months, because I have a feeling <laughs> <laughs> that funnily enough, yes. um, they might be able to eradicate a lot of this. You know? Yeah, I mean, it, it was always better solved by a finance process 
than oh. a technical solution. And countries like Japan, who have historically not dealt with much BEC, they're in the crosshairs right now in a way they weren't before. Yeah, I mean, when you when you go back to like years ago, say, you know, five to 10 years ago, when BEC was first sort of kicking off, you know, a lot of the big ones that worked back then, they wouldn't work now. I think large companies at least have got better at uh, uh, dealing with this. Yes. One, I, I keep remembering the, the story of Facebook. I don't know if you remember hearing this oh, one yeah. on the show. Yeah. So for <laughs> those Facebook who don't remember. And Facebook and Google for that same one. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it was uh, Facebook's like large Taiwan-based like hardware supplier that supplied, you know, the hardware that they use in their data centers. There was someone who did BEC on Facebook and managed to run away with, well, they didn't get very far, but they got like $150 million in payments. And uh, Alex Stamos, friend of the show, he was the CISO at Facebook at the time. And he described them as the dog who caught the The car. car. (laughs) Because the thing is, when it's $150 bucks, funnily enough, you can get the FBI on the phone. Yes. uh, And they'll take that one seriously. And even if you... Even if you're in the Baltics, you're, that's an extradition treaty, uh, not smart. So the FBI got that one. They got their money back and they all lived happily ever after. But, you know, it is still just such a, a, a big problem for ordinary business, small to medium business, you know, real estate companies, construction firms, whatever, you know, firms that tend to push around, you know, large amounts of money, but are small businesses. Yeah. And, you know, you, you, you would sort of think maybe some of these approaches are going to help I mean, first of all, the banking regulation stuff, I think, will, will make a big difference. But um, I don't see that happening in America. Uh, but you would, you would hope that approaches like these might actually, you know, really help to stamp out some of this fraud uh, or at least make it much harder. You know? Well, and, and it's sort of like ransomware in that it kind of migrates around the world. You just have somebody else's turn in the barrel every once in a while uh, when yeah. the heat gets too high in certain places. We've certainly seen that with Europe lately. Uh, we saw it with Latin America not too long ago. Uh, BEC is similar. We're, we're seeing an uptick in, Man- in Latin America and actually one of the top destinations for initial transfers of BEC funds for the first time ever is Mexico. So it is this sort of rotation that occurs and I think they will flee in the regulatory regimes that you just talked about. It'd be nice to see that UK template happen elsewhere, but it's certainly not going to happen overnight. And because this level no, of sophistication is Just on the Mexico low, thing, why, why, why are they sending it to Mexico? Is it because the groups are based in Mexico or because someone just has a good relationship with a corrupt bank or something? Uh, probably both. Uh, yeah. is, is a little bit in column there. A, a little bit in column yeah, A. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but we are seeing just a general uptick in BEC scams in, in Latin America broadly because hmm. I think it's, it's, it's just less well known than it is in uh, a lot of other places where it's been around since 2015 in, in a fairly high volume. And you've heard about it, even if you you still might fall for the social engineering. So the it's it's this it's this, it's this constant rotation of relatively simple tactics, where again, generative AI is probably going to help them be a lot more effective in in ways that they hadn't been previously. It's not going to revolutionize phishing. It still works the same way. It's not going to revolutionize how how people write malware. We certainly haven't seen that. It's not even yeah. really going to I I, I think fundamentally uh, I change. Think- no, I, sorry, I'm just going to pull you up on that thing, on the change the way people write malware. I mean, I don't think it's going to fundamentally alter. I mean, it's going to, there's going to be useful software development tools that come out of this that, that's going to impact software development writ large. Sure. But I also think, too, there will be some useful things in terms of obfuscating code and whatever. Like, I think, I think there will be use cases. There. Yeah, it can make it easier to create a new packer or something, for sure. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, but I, I mean, Packers already exist, right? Yes, so, that's yeah. that's exactly it, right? And the <laughs> and the annoying part of malware, you know, you continuing to uh, basically rotate infrastructure and doing all those sorts of things, putting together the giant spam bots that tend to fire out the bigger campaigns. That's that's really hard to automate, even with an LLM. So I don't know that that's going to actually be meaningfully affected. The other thing that we're constantly asked about is, okay, if you have these new phishing messages generated by you know, generative AI, you know, aren't they going to get past your existing filters? Can't you just you know ask, hey, uh, ChatGPT, uh, write or, or get, create an attack that'll get through Proofpoint, that sort of thing, or Microsoft yeah. or anybody else? Interestingly, we can do that too. <laughs> so it's entirely possible to actually sort of pre-train the models on on outputs of, of those models, which we have not had to do, just to be clear. But um, that is one one of the interesting ways to approach that, that and I think ultimately is, is going to be a useful use of Gen AI. Get there first. Do what you think they're going to do to you before they're actually able to do it, and then train your own models on it. So, so you're going to build a trace buster, 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 buster. <laughs> the only thing that is getting in our way right now is that the there's uh, there's an obscure '90s reference yes, that like ten people got. But anyway, go, continue. That's a quality <laughs> for those of a certain of us of a certain age for sure. Uh, but the, the the thing that the thing that is currently the obstacle, and I'll be completely candid on this, the true positive rate for the tools that we're we're using to detect whether something was created by AI. The true positive rate right now for us is, I believe, twenty four percent. So, well, and it's not good. It's, the other thing is too that you got to remember is that I personally know people who are just terrible writers. They're very good at their jobs, <laughs> yes, but they're terrible writers. And guess what they use to send emails with now? You know, like they, yeah. they use ChatGPT. Totally. They're like, hey, write me an email that tells the person this, and it spits out, you know. <laughs> Look, as someone who's been writing professionally for two decades, I hate the way ChatGPT writes. It's horrible because it's been trained on how everyone writes and how yeah. most people write is horrible. And uh, it just, you know, it is the most bland, average corporate speak. Weird blend between cor- corporate speak and forum posts, you know. And <laughs> well, yeah. And like ninth, ninth grade essay answers also. Yeah, exactly, that. exactly. And it just um, spits out the email, they hit send and happily ever after. So you yep. can't just detect, you know, you can't just say that all text generated by these tools is going to be somehow malicious when people who might be dyslexic, you know, are, are using it and love it for that. Absolutely. And there, I think the, and this is going to, I can't think of a better, less trite way to say this, but the human augmentation side of this is going to be powerful, whether it's for the security awareness purposes, whether it's for alerting people when they're in an email chain that looks like they're falling for a BEC attack, or even when they put data at risk. You know, we, we have prompts that pop up on our DLP and, and insider tools when somebody looks like they're violating a, a business process in terms of how they're handling sensitive information. Being able to interact with something that can talk to you and can talk back is uh, is very very useful. It's like it's like Clippy, but he jumps up and says, "Hey, <laughs> tell me what the f- you're doing." <laughs> and some people want Clippy to be armed. That's that's for sure. It's uh, it's a cultural thing. Uh, some people. It looks like you're trying to exfiltrate our customer list. <laughs> what the f- are you doing? Uh, yes, please click here for your manager's approval on that. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah, those things. And actually, to your point, this is just a random aside. Now that we have fun ML models to analyze things and you can look at lots and lots of DLP alerts, do you want to uh, guess the top two job functions that exfiltrate data from from our customers? Tell me. Uh, that would be sales, number one, by 
a very, yeah. very long distance. And Customer list, mate. The Rolodex it, is coming with me. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And, uh, well, they just sort of take everything with them on the way at the door. And I think they, yeah. they, they change jobs frequently, so that certainly affects the data. Uh, it actually engineers. Uh, people feel yeah. like they are entitled to their source code, uh, and that shows up in the data incredibly yeah, clearly. I mean, look, with both, I can kind of understand it. Like, yeah. you know, it's the thing that you worked on with the source code. And I, I kind of think salespeople... The reason they get hired is because of their Rolodex, for God's sakes. You know what I mean? You're hiring them because they've got that big bag of contacts. You can't get salty when they take their contacts with them when they go to the next job. It's why you hired them in the first place. But anyway. It's um, it's a fair point. And I will say the last thing on the DLP side where you can actually do some interesting things, although this is not still in the generative AI bucket, is now instead of writing regular expressions or or dictionaries in order to try to identify sensitive data if you've got 10 examples of that document you can just train a little model like it's very very easy to do and that's very straightforward unfortunately like all these other things that we're talking about it's not magic it's not getting anywhere near 100 percent fidelity so you still have all the classic problems of false positives and you have to look at other things like the user behavior context in order to actually alert on things and not drive everyone crazy so to sum up Basically, large language models are allowing business email compromise crews to hit uh, any country in which the language is supported uh, by the chatbot. So that's a massive win for them. And you're having some success in being able to pick this stuff up uh, on the detection side. But I I think that's the thing, isn't it? You know, I keep describing large language models as productivity tools. And here we got an example where it's increasing productivity for people on the adversarial side, you know, on the malicious side and on the defender side. So, yes. you know, yay, I guess. Well, and the, and the, right. the only people whose jobs have been affected more are, are those who are either raising money right now or are cybersecurity marketing. Because uh, ultimately, that is having a massive impact on how they have to do their jobs and how you have to explain what you do. And that's the part that I think is actually interesting in, in light of this conversation how to actually talk about what it does specifically and its impact on, on the threat landscape, it almost seems a little bit prosaic compared to all the hype and all of the things that we yeah. thought back in November that would immediately change. It's it's just not living up to that reality. All right. Well, Ryan Kalimba, thank you very much for that conversation. That was all very interesting stuff. Uh, yeah, great stuff, man. Really good to talk to you. Really good to see you. And we'll chat to you again soon. Likewise, a pleasure, Pat.